In, in 2007, my wife and I bought the house that we live in today. And we had never had a basement before. We'd never had a basement. Basement is awesome. You can put stuff down there and the kids can, can do things down there. And, and so we had never had a basement. And we had never had a flooded basement. We'd never had a flooded basement. In 2009, Kentucky experienced the second big ice storm. We had a massive ice storm in 2003 that crippled the entire state. And in 2009, we had another one, a little bit smaller, but enough to knock out power for several days. And so Jenny and I and the kids went to bed at that night, the first day without power, not thinking a thing about what happens to basements and sump pumps that don't work. And when we woke up in the morning, dad, dad, come see the basement. There's seven inches of water. Well, I, I spring into action. I'm, I go down and I'm grabbing stuff and I'm coming up the stairs and I'm throwing it into the family room and I'm going down and I'm grabbing more stuff and I'm running up the stairs and I'm throwing it into the family room and then I, I jump in my car because Lowe's is gonna open and I figure maybe they'll have a gas-powered uh, water pump. And sure enough, I'm the first one there and they sell me their last powered gas pump. It's been raining, ice raining, everything's covered in ice, and it starts to snow as I'm outside. And I'm trying to get it started like a banshee. I'm pulling on this thing. It's gonna start, it's gonna start, and then. So it's, it's sucking water now. And I go back down into the basement. And the water had been there long enough. It's a painted concrete floor that the paint was starting to come off. And at this point, there was now 12 inches of water in my basement, and I slip, and I go for a swim, right? And so now it's 35 degrees, I'm soaking wet, like I've swam in a swimming pool, and at the top of the stairs is my daughter, Jillian. <laughs> Remember what you said? Jillian was nine at the time, daddy, daddy, can we please keep the swimming pool, please? Can we keep it? <laughs> well, my plumbers arrive and they have a gas pump and, and, it, and they put their line in and at that moment, the power comes back on. And so in 30 minutes, we had all of that water, a thousand square foot basement, 12 inches of water, it was gone, gone. And I think to myself, man, that could have been so much worse. And then the next day, I, I don't feel right. And so I go to see my doctor, and my doctor sends me to a surgeon. And the surgeon says, Mr. Vanderpool, you have a groinal hernia. I have what? <laughs> you have a groinal hernia, and we're going to have to have surgery. You can't live like this, you can't walk like this. And so I have the surgery for my groinal hernia that I got trying to save my basement. And, and they tell me before the surgery, now, Mr. Vanderpool, here's the thing about this surgery, we're gonna put in mesh and there's, you already know it's a sensitive area. We, we, we're gonna tell you right now, don't cough. Like for two or three weeks, don't cough, don't sneeze, don't do these kind of things because you could jeopardize the work that we're gonna do today. Okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. So I go through the surgery, my dad is there to drive me home 
and I, and I take, they give you these pills for the pain, right? Oxycontin or whatever it is and Percocets. And, and so I take the first of those and 30 minutes later, I'm dry heaving, you know, which is more than coughing or sneezing into the toilet and I'm, and I'm grabbing the sides of the toilet and I'm going, God, where are you? Okay, why is it, why is it that we feel that God is most present when things are going well? Why is it that we assume that God is closest to us when the relationships are strong and there's no conflict, when the bills are paid and we have extra at the end of the month? Why is it that we assume that uh, God is totally on the move when the church is growing and having to build buildings? Why is it that we assume that God is most and closest, most present and closest to us when things are happening and when things are moving? Why do we assume that? The Bible is screaming at us and saying, no, no, you've got it backwards. No, no, that's not how it works. God is closest when you're weak. God is closest when you're incapable. It's the story of Joseph who's sold into slavery and then ends up in prison. It's the Hebrews who are in slavery in Egypt crying out to God and Pharaoh's like, I know, we'll kill all their babies and they keep multiplying and multiplying. It's the story of Moses who says, I can't speak and God says, you're gonna speak for me. Um, it, it's, it's what we see in the life of Mary and Joseph, who are people of insignificance. It's Gideon, right, who has an army of 10,000, and God says, I can't work with that. Whittle him down, and he gets down to 300, 300 versus thousands, and God says, I can do something. I can win a battle with that. That's something I can do. And, and we see it in the New Testament. The disciples, they're fishermen, they're zealots, they're tax collectors, they're the worst kind of people. And yet, God does amazing things through them, through their weakness. You know when things are, you know where it's tough in the Bible? It's when things are going really well. When everything's going really well and all the bills are paid and you're set like a perm, that's when trouble's lurking. It's David on the rooftop who sees Bathsheba. It's Solomon who says, man, I've knocked out the temple, I'm set, my kingdom is as far as I can see, no worries. It's uh, Moses who's talking to the Israelites when they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, they're about to go into the promised land and Moses says in Deuteronomy 6, listen, you're gonna get into this land and you're gonna have several years of bumper crops and you're gonna drift and you're gonna forget there was even a day when day in and day out you were literally dependent on God to feed you. The Bible screams at us, do, do any of you like feeling weak? Does anybody wake up in the morning and say to themselves, man, I would love to feel powerless today. Do you, do you ever think, God, render me incapable? Oh God, render me incapable. Does, do any of you have as one of your 2018 goals? One of my goals this year is to be completely and utterly dependent on others, even to get around. I, you know, that's, that's one of my top goals for 2018. None of us, none of us wants to be weak, but the thing is, weakness keeps us humble. And that's a good thing because according to the Bible, God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. So today, 
I wanna share with you a secret to the Christian life, a secret to living the Christian life. And it's really simple. God's grace and power show up in our weakness. God's grace and power show up in our unimpressiveness. God's grace and power show up in our afflictions. God's grace and power show up in our pain. God's grace and power show up in our inadequacies. God's grace and power show up in our weakness, not in our strengths. There's a story from Greek mythology. Uh, there was a guy named Daedalus, and Daedalus uh, was a sculptor, he was a craftsman, he was an innovator, and King Minos conscripted him to the Isle of Crete to work for him, and, and Daedalus built this huge labyrinth. But Daedalus wanted to leave, and King Minos decided, oh, you're not leaving, you're stuck on this island forever, <laughs> maniacal laugh. And Daedalus, being the inventor, decided, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna invent a way out of this thing. And so he made out of wax and feathers two sets of wings, one for him and one for his son, Icarus. And when the wings were complete, the day came and they flew the nest, right? Off they go, <laughs> over the Mediterranean Sea, back to Greece. But Daedalus's son, Icarus, dad, I can fly, I'm on top of the world, do, 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 do. And off he goes higher and higher and higher to the sun, and his dad's like, no, 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 man, no. Dad, I got this, flaps, and of course, the higher he gets, the sun, the heat of the sun starts to melt the wax, and the wings start to come off in chunks, and Icarus falls and plummets into the Mediterranean Sea to his death. It's where we get the phrase, don't fly too high. Don't get too puffed up. Stay humble. Uh, Tom Wright says that this Greek story is, is told, the Christian version of it is told in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which is where we're gonna be today. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul has written to a group of Christians in Corinth. And Paul is having to defend his apostleship. He's having to defend himself. And in chapter 11, the previous chapter that we were in last week, Paul defends it and he says, you know why you should listen to me? You know why you should follow me? Because I'm weak. Because I've suffered. That's why you should follow me. And of course, all the Americans were like, yeah, sign us up. No, it's like, it's upside down. It's totally contrary to the way that we roll. And so in chapter 12, Paul continues on with this line of thinking. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're gonna walk through these first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. So he is, he's, he doesn't wanna boast, as he explained in chapter 11, um, Jesus was not a boastful man. When you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't go, kapow, you're healed. Oh yeah, who just laid the healing? I did, mic drop. Like Jesus simply doesn't roll that way. That's not part of his DNA, it's not part of his character. Jesus is humble, he takes the form of a servant. Okay, and so Paul knows this, and he knows it's not a Christian thing to boast, but he's trying to show these Corinthian Christians 
why they should follow him and why his walk is the authentic walk, not the walk of the super apostles that are like, you should follow me because I'm an amazing communicator. You should listen to me because I'm, I'm doing all these things in big places. And so Paul lays out something that happened to him that's just, uh, it's incredible. For someone who grew up Baptist, I read this today and I'm like, this is amazing, this is incredible, okay? So that's verses two through six. And we'll read it and we'll talk about it. I was caught up in the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body, but I know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. So 14 years ago, Paul has some kind of vision or revelation. 14 years ago would have been roughly AD 42. It would have been before his first missionary journey. It would have been when Paul was in training. He had seen Jesus on the road to the Damascus and he's being trained and prepped for his ministry and he has this experience. Um, is it an Enoch thing, like uh, Genesis 5, where, where the Bible says God, uh, Enoch walked with God and God took Enoch? Is it an Elijah thing, where Elijah is caught up in the whirlwind is ta and is taken to heaven? Is it an out-of-body experience? Who knows? Here's what I can tell you about Hebrew cosmology, okay? This is not science. We know science. We know how the universe works, okay? But they, what they're saying is, where we dwell, there are layers between where we dwell and where God dwells. There's layers. And they talk about the first heaven as kind of being the atmosphere, the second heaven being the stars, and the third heaven is where God dwells. Um, when Jesus says to the criminal on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, we could translate that, today you'll be with me in the third heaven, because that's what he would have meant, okay? And so um, Paul is taken up and ends up in paradise where God dwells. Um, isn't this incredible? Do you know how we would handle a revelation like that in America today? First of all, we'd write a best-selling book my Rapture, a personal account of my trip to heaven and back, HarperCollins. We'd go on a book tour and promote it. People would be astounded at our incredible story, and hopefully somebody would catch it and make it into a movie. And if that weren't enough, you know what else we'd do? We'd run seminars, and we'd go all across the country telling people, here are the five steps for you to have your own personal rapture. Five steps to have your own personal rapture. That's how we would go about it, but, but not Paul. Not Paul, it happened 14 years ago and he had told no one. This incredible experience that he had didn't tell anyone. And he kind of gives us a little bit of why in the next couple of verses. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not gonna do it. 
Oh, and by the way, at the very first part of this, it doesn't say, I was caught up. In the Greek, it says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up. <laughs> okay, that's what it says literally in the Greek. All right, so verses five and six. That experience is worth boasting about, but not, I'm not gonna do it. I'll only boast about what? My weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I'd be telling the truth, but I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. Here's what he's saying in these verses. You can have an amazing revelation, but that's not the basis of authority. Just because you see something or God enables you to see something, that's, that's no reason why people should follow you. Look to their life and their speech. Are they walking the walk in addition to talking the talk? Paul says, you can see it in my life, you can hear it in my message. That's why you should follow me. In other words, I don't care about what visions anybody has. You need to look and show me their walk. And then I'll go, yep, that person reeks of Jesus. Well, he keeps on. And this is the second part of verse seven and following. Um, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Paul's vision was so amazing and so incredible, God gives him a thorn to keep him from becoming conceited. Paul, Paul, the, the apostle Paul, the, the one personally called by Jesus is at risk of becoming conceited. And this thorn, there's all kinds of debate. Is it an affliction? Is it something like a skin disease or an ailment? Is it, uh, is it a temptation? Jerome thought it was sexual temptation. Of course, at that point in church history, they were obsessed about sexual temptation. Uh, some people say it was a person. Uh, I've heard my great aunts would refer to Eunice is a thorn in my side. <laughs> and that was not a positive statement, not at all. Um, and so what is it? We don't know. I'm glad that we don't know because it makes it much easier for you and me to acknowledge the thorns that we have in our lives. Things that, uh, life that, that make us weak, uh, things that cause us to cry out to God. Uh, the phrase here, keep me from becoming proud. Paul needed this in his life so he wouldn't become a conceited jerk. Of course, the irony is that for Paul, this is, this is, this is why the Corinthians should be following him and not the super apostles who are conceited <laughs> and who are jerks and who are taking their money and, and trying to control them and doing all these terrible things. And he says, three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. In other words, whatever this is, Paul didn't want it. It's not like when he got it, Paul was like, thank you, Jesus, this is awesome. I can suffer more now. No, he's like, take this. I don't want this, and, and when you're reading this here in verse eight, you should be remembering Jesus in the garden who three times asks God, come on, let this cup pass from me. I don't want this, but whatever you want is what I'll do. 
Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. And three times Paul says, take this from me, take this from me. And of course, God doesn't. And then there's the, the killer verse, which is what comes next. And you probably have it on a little calendar, Christian calendar. You'll see people with this verse on the back of their cars. And it always sounds so trite and like such a platitude, but I wanna root it in its context today. And that verse is this. Jesus said to me, my grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient for you. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. This, this isn't a platitude. This isn't a bumper sticker. This isn't a glib expression. This is born out of an incredible amount of suffering. It's born out of a man who begged God, take this thorn from me, someone who didn't want it. And Jesus says, I am enough. When we read here, my grace is all you need, when you see the word grace, you should personalize it. Grace isn't just a doctrine, grace is a person. Grace is Jesus. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus, the companion to those who suffer. And so Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And this next part, the power of Christ can work through me. There's a, there's a phrase here, rest upon me. It's the same phrase used in Exodus about the tabernacle, when God pitched a tent and dwelt among his people. It's the same phrase used in John 1, when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God pitched a tent among us. In other words, in our weakness, God moves in and pitches a tent with us. Let me ask some questions in light of this. Have you ever encountered a no from God in order to bring about growth in you? Have you ever encountered a no that you were like, but God. How can you tell when you're becoming spiritually proud? Is it easy? Is it hard? See, the thing about weakness is we wanna deny our weaknesses, we wanna refute them, we wanna defend them, we wanna excuse them, and ultimately we try to hide them, and God says, I want to use them, I want to use your weaknesses, and we say to God, whoa, no, 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 here, here, use my strengths instead. So I wanna, I wanna share four things with you today that weakness can do for you. And this is according to John Lindell, all right? Four things that weakness can do for you. One, weakness guarantees God's help. We have a saying in America, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, that's bunk. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. If you're in trouble, if you can't, it's, it's entirely okay to pray, pray this prayer. Jesus, help. 
I know so many Christians that don't want to pray that prayer. They don't want to pray, help me, Jesus. That is the most authentic prayer you can pray. Own it and pray it and mean it. All these people who lined the road, who were blind and infirm when Jesus passed by, Lord, have mercy. Jesus, help. So pray that prayer. Weakness guarantees God's help. Weakness prevents pride. There are stories that the early Christians would take the sweat rags of Paul and the sweat rags of Paul would actually heal people. Imagine being Paul. Yeah, that was my sweat. (laughs) Kapow, right? So if Paul had the potential to get cocky, you and I have the potential to get cocky. I can tell you as a pastor, the times when I've gotten the most into trouble or when I thought I had my act together, or when I thought I nailed a sermon, or when I thought my leadership was spot on, that's always, always, always when I've gotten into trouble because God wants to use my weakness. Have you ever thought about this? Pride, pride is what made the devil the devil. Pride is what made an angel of the Lord to go, no, no, don't need or want your help. I got this. Pride is what made the devil the devil, which is why in scripture we read God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Third, weakness causes us to value others. When you're operating in your strengths, when you can say, I've got this, you're independent. And that's not biblical and that's not what God wants for us. God wants us to be dependent on him and dependent on one another. And the last thing is weakness encourages the people around us. I know this as a parent. When I'm sitting down with another parent and they tell me all the things they're doing right as a parent and how awesome their kids are, I want to hit them. (laughs) I just want to hit them, okay? But when I sit down with another parent and they're sharing with me their weaknesses and their struggles, oh man, I'm there. We're best buds now. (laughs) Because I struggle and I have weaknesses too as a parent. Um, When we share our weakness and our struggle, it builds community. Um, He doesn't come here, he moved away, but in the early days of generations, I had a guy once tell me, he goes, Pastor Max, I love hearing you preach. And I was like, really? Yeah. He goes, it's great. Every week I go home and I think, I'm not that messed up. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) glad my weakness could be on display. (laughs) (laughs) isn't it true in our weakness one of the ways it encourages other people when you've lost a parent when someone else has lost a parent man that can encourage you when you've lost a child someone else who's lost a child when you've gone through a divorce when you've been fired someone else who's on the other side of that and has walked that same road it's an encouraging thing God uses our weakness to encourage the people around us When you get to a point where God is all you have, you're gonna find that he's all you need. When you get to a point where God is all you have, you're gonna find he's all you need. God's grace and power show up the most in our weakness. You know this because you know this song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, 
They are weak, but he is strong. They are weak, but he is strong.